Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke the sixth, to Leviticus the sixteenth chapter, and we will read uh, verses twenty-nine through thirty-one of Leviticus uh, chapter sixteen. And this shall be a statute forever unto you that in the seventh day, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by statute forever. May God bless this reading and hearing of his word. In September or October of the year, the Jewish people... Observe what is called Yom Kippur. This is the most solemn day of their Jewish religious days. Uh, this dates back to the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus, which we just read from. The term Yom means day and Kippur, atonement, the day of atonement. And uh, we find in this chapter the biblical directions for how this day was to be observed. And, of course, we, in the light of the New Testament, can understand the significance of it. Let's look at uh, this great chapter of Scripture, which was something of the high point of the Jewish religious year. We read, uh, first of all, of the prohibition of the high priest from entering into the Holy of Holies. You remember that the tabernacle, this great tent that God had instructed Moses to build for a way of symbolizing the way God could be approached, was the center of their religious worship. In the innermost sanctuary of this, called the Holy of Holies, God manifested his presence symbolically. Uh, the seat of his kingdom on earth, so to speak, was uh, designated right here. Uh, within this holiest of holies, uh, there <clears throat> was only the Ark of the Covenant, this box overlaid with gold. Uh, the <clears throat> top of the box had a covering that fitted exactly over the top of the box, solid gold, entitled the mercy seat of the exact dimensions of the box. Then above this would appear the miraculous Shekinah glory, a supernatural light that symbolized the presence of God. At least it appeared there on occasion, perhaps all of the time. The high priest was prohibited from entering this holiest of holies. We read of this in the first and second verses of the 16th chapter. The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. 
for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Here's this Shekinah glory that we spoke of. We're reminded of what had preceded earlier, how Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, had gone in without permission, had offered strange fire before the Lord, and had been struck dead. Fire had proceeded from the throne of God, and they had been consumed. And this is mentioned. And then Aaron is told that he is prohibited from going into the holy place at all times, lest he die. The symbolism speaks of what was in the Ark of the Covenant. What was symbolized by these things? You remember that within that ark were the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, which spoke of God's nature, his holiness, his righteousness, the fiery law of God. Sinful man could not stand before God when that law was delivered from Mount Sinai in august majesty. They trembled. They could not stand in his presence then, nor could they stand before that law as it comprised a testimony of God's holiness and as it testified against their sinfulness to the God whose presence it was placed in, they could not stand before him uh, spiritually. How can sinful man approach a holy God when the law of God and the very nature of God testifies against their sin and his fiery law must consume them for their sin. God is a consuming fire. God hates sin as that abomination, abominable thing. There's the animation, though, that he could come at some time. And then this is developed throughout the chapter, when he could come. Once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to come. There was this provision made when once a year, in a particular way, he could come into the Holy of Holies and stand in the presence of God. This pointed to the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would enter into God's presence for us. The procedure brings out very clearly the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look then at the procedure for the high priest when entering the Holy of Holies. First, his attire. In verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. Normally the high priest, when performing his functions, wore the glorious embroidered uh, uniform. But he was to lay this aside and put only the linen, the white plain cloth on, after washing himself, and then go into the presence of the Lord. 
This speaks of Jesus Christ laying aside his glory, coming to earth, living a holy life, and thus atoning for our sins. Again, uh, the atonement that was to be made. Verse 5, He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. The word atonement means making at one. It presupposes estrangement or enmity between two parties. When you make atonement, you bring these two parties together where there had been former enmity. The high priest was to make at one between God and the people. And God is estranged from the people. How would he make atonement? He would make atonement uh, through these offerings. You notice first that he must make atonement for himself. He brings a bullock for himself, for himself and for his family. Uh, he was to offer this, then he was to take the blood into the holiest of holies, And there he was to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. We read about this in the 14th verse. He shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. On the mercy seat and on the floor in front of it, he sprinkled the blood. Again, he took a censer full of burning coals and with incense on it. In verse 12, he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, the altar of incense, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. He comes with incense and with blood. The blood spoke of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He could only enter the presence of God through the death of Jesus Christ, making payment for his sin. But even so, he must come with prayer or supplication symbolized by the incense. He must come with the attitude of heart, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Pleading mercy and sprinkling this blood on the mercy seat. Then he offered for the people and for the place. In the 15th verse, then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He was to... 
not only make atonement for his own sin, but then he was to make atonement with a he-goat for the sin of the people. He started with two he-goats. This is mentioned in the fifth verse. He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering. Notice one offering, but two goats. But he only killed one of these goats. And he sprinkled its blood on the mercy seat. Then he sprinkled it on the floor and on the various instruments within the tabernacle. The people were contaminated. They needed atoning for. But also the tabernacle itself, the place, the holy instruments, they were contaminated. The very contact with sinful people contaminated these holy instruments. Doesn't that speak of the contaminating nature of sin? Even in our holiest exercises, we're contaminated by sin. When we come together and we pray, even in prayer, we often are involved in sin. Uh, When we sing a hymn in worshiping God, even we need... uh, to ask forgiveness for singing the hymn, in a sense, because as we sing, uh, maybe our whole heart doesn't go into it, or maybe uh, we're praying, take my silver and my gold, we're singing this. Meanwhile, we're withholding our silver and our gold. Uh, In various ways, we, even in our holy exercise, need atonement. The steps involved in this procedure were very significant. First, he was to select the goat which was to be used for the sacrifice. And he did this by casting lots. In verse 8, Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. God chose the goat. They cast lots. Jesus Christ, who would be the sin offering that God would provide, would be one not that man chose, but that God chose, chosen of God from all eternity to be the great sin offering through which he would make atonement. Again, uh, the sacrifice had to be offered and the blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, which was upon the testimony, which was upon these two tablets of stone. The idea that God could be merciful, but his mercy would be founded on righteousness, on law. In showing us mercy, God would not overlook his law. Rather, it would be a mercy that was in accord with the principles of justice, a holy mercy. God is just. He will not overlook his law. God is loving and merciful, and he wants to forgive sinners. He worked out a way whereby he could be merciful, and yet it would not be at the expense of justice. He would punish every sin ever committed, but not every sinner. The mercy was through the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood would cover the law would cover their offenses from the sight of a holy God. And then he could be forgiving and yet just. 
It carries with it the idea of satisfaction to God's holy law. This is what's known as the satisfaction theory of the atonement. That Christ died in order to make satisfaction to the justice of God and the righteousness of God. You find this set forth in the third chapter of Romans, where we read that God uh, set forth his Son to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God did it this way so he could be just when he forgave us. Christ made satisfaction to the justice of God. Another key word that we pick up here is propitiation. Not only was it a legal matter, but it was a personal matter. God is personal. God's law is not <clears throat> divorced from God himself. We broke the law, true, but we offended God personally by our sin. And he needs personally to be propitiated, to be placated. The wrath of God burns against our sin. It's the wrath of God. It's a personal wrath. And he needed to be propitiated. Contains uh, the idea of substitution, the idea of uh, this innocent third party dying in our place. All of these ideas are wrapped up in this symbolism here. And over in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews brings out the significance of this as follows. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heaven should be purified with these. These were patterns, this pictured the way it is. But the heavenly things themselves, God himself, with better sacrifices than these, the blood of a goat could not really remove sin. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His death was a sacrifice. His death was a substitution. His death was a propitiation. His death was a satisfaction to the justice of God. There are those who mock this so-called satisfaction and substitutionary theory of the atonement. You can read it in the literature published by our own denomination, the book on Christian doctrine written by Shirley Guthrie of Columbia Seminary, where he decries this view of the atonement as incorrect. Well, if we're just setting forth a theory of the atonement and he wants to differ from the theory, that's one thing. 
But if we're setting forth the Old and New Testament doctrine of the atonement and he wants to differ from that, it's heretical. This is the teaching of Scripture concerning the true nature of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Notice the aloneness of the atoner. We read in the 17th verse, There shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. None of the other priests were to be in there to assist as they normally did in his other activities. He alone would do this work because Jesus Christ alone would be the true high priest who would offer himself and would do all the work needed. And his work is finished and it cannot be added to by our efforts. Jesus Christ is our atonement. If the high priest did something wrong, the atonement for the entire people hung on his doing these things right. If Jesus Christ had committed one sin, then we would be lost. Our whole salvation hangs on him alone. The next thing that we look at is the azil, azazil, or the scapegoat. In verse 20, Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. And confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let the goat go into the wilderness. This is what's known as the... <clears throat> scapegoat, as it's translated here. The Hebrew word is azazel. It's only used in the Bible in this chapter. Men differ over the meaning of it, but the derivation of the word points to the idea of complete separation or removal. The laying on of the hands upon this goat by the high priest, and then the confessing of the sins of the people over the head of the goat, symbolize the transference of all of their guilt to that goat. You notice that as he confessed the sins of the people, everyone was involved because everyone was a sinner. He didn't say, Ebenezer, you stand over there. You're not so bad. Uh, Mary over there, he confessed everyone. Nor did he say, Abraham, you're too sinful. You get out of here. It didn't matter how vile the sinner might be. He was included in this procedure of transference of guilt to the goat. And then another man would lead this goat away as all the people stood and watched until the goat was completely out of sight, led away into a wilderness, then released, signifying the removal of sins as far as the east is from the west. 
So far has God removed our iniquities from us. It points, just as the first one appointed to the essence of God's work of atonement, how our sins would be atoned. This points to the effect of it. Once the offering had been offered correctly, then their sins were effectually removed forever. Buried in the depths of the sea, placed behind God's back where he can never see them. This is again spoken of in the book of Hebrews in the 10th chapter, where we read this, By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is the covenant I will make with them, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. By one offering, and there never needs to be another, he has removed our sins effectually. Do you notice <clears throat> there's the participation of the people? The people played a part in this removal. This is brought out in the 29th verse. This shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, which was this day of atonement, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. There was something they were to do and there was something they were not to do. They were to afflict their souls. This speaks of penitence. This speaks of sorrow for sin. This speaks of repentance turning from our sin, so sorry that we quit it. You see, it's no good that Jesus Christ died if you're not repentant, if you're not a humbled sinner, if you're not broken for and from your sin. We must surrender our wills to Jesus Christ as Lord. We must come to him in true repentance. On the other hand, you notice that they were not to do any work. He did all the work. Our repentance does not add to the work that he did. We're not forgiven on the basis of how repentant we are, how many good deeds we do. We're forgiven solely on the basis of the work that Jesus Christ did when he died. He did all the work needed. We don't merit salvation. But neither one of these things are exclusive of the others. We put our trust solely in the work which Jesus Christ did. We surrender in true repentance and humility to Jesus Christ as our Lord. Those who are saved are believers. They are those who rest their weight on the head of Jesus Christ, trust him as their sin bearer. Those who are saved are penitents, believing penitents and penitent believers. This is the combination that we find all the way through Scripture as the way of salvation. Beloved, uh, if you are a penitent believer today, the implications are tremendous. In the book of Hebrews, as the writer draws some conclusions from this tremendous promise of God that he will uh, no longer remember their sins, the writer says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
we not only are safe as we enter, we can enter boldly by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, the veil that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He says, if you really are a penitent believer, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he paid for all of your sins, and you sincerely are sorry, and you're seeking to do his will, you're really humble, then you are forgiven. Your sins are removed. What they saw in shadow, you have in substance. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. When I come like that on my knees, trusting in Jesus Christ, just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, the very presence of God, through the blood of the Lamb. Let us draw near with full assurance of faith. And he says, let us hold fast to our profession. Nothing wavering. Listen, we, we've got what it's all about. If you put your trust in Jesus and you've surrendered to him, you've got what it's all about, what life's all about. Don't you let anything shake you. Hold fast. He's going to hold you, but you hold fast. This is it. Don't let any temptation remove you from this. Don't let any uh, contradiction of sinners against us remove us from this. I tell you, if they stand you before a firing squad and they say, Abandon your faith in Jesus Christ and deny him or we will kill you. You say, kill me, I'm going to be with him. Hold fast. That's what it's all about. Then there are those of you present who are not penitent sinners, penitent believers. We would just say to you that we must all resemble either the oblation or the offer. We either resemble that sacrificed, which was killed and consumed, which was banished to another land, or we resemble that pardoned offerer who placed his head, his hands on the head of the lamb and trusted God to remove his sins. Either we must be consumed in hell like that awful sacrifice, or we must be one of those who puts his trust in Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Won't you today become a penitent believer? Won't you today really, thinking of the tremendous sacrifice that he gave of himself for you, invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and Lord, put your trust in him, and surrender your will to him right now, let us bow in prayer. If right now you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ, you want to become a penitent believer, you mean business, pray in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge my sin. I need a Savior. 
I see from this scripture so amazingly picturing ahead of time your death, the way of salvation. And I do lay my sins on you. I do put my trust in you. And I am penitent. I surrender my will to you. I want deliverance from my sin. And in faith, I thank you right now that you have come into my heart. Amen.